We're going to open the Bible to Luke 11. If you, if you have the brown one in front of you, it's page 1528. And let me pray as you're getting ready. Father, it's our joy to be called your children, to be called on the way and to come to know you and to be called into your family. But Lord, we also want to acknowledge that the Christian life is... Um, It's not a life that we invent as we go along, Lord. There's a pattern that Christ laid down for us. There's a a way which he modeled for us. And there is instruction in your word. And Lord God, we want to conform and be conformed to your will and your word. And we want to have hearts that are lit with a flame, Lord God, to love you better. I pray, Lord, that as we now seek to just unpack more of what the Lord's Prayer is about, I ask that your spirit would bring a clarity and a power to what we're studying today that would change our lives, Lord. We're asking, Lord, that you would make us a people who, whose hearts and minds and lives are dedicated to you. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to read just the beginning of Luke 11 then. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray. I love that, how Jesus goes off and he's praying and they're kind of watching and they're desperate to know, okay, what's he doing that's different? We're looking at his life and um, we're intrigued. He's clearly got something we haven't got. And they say, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is uh, Luke's version. It's a little bit shorter than the one you probably memorized at primary school um, from Matthew's Gospel. But um, it's basically the same ideas are put across. Prayer. So we wanted to do a quick study on this because I think we all agree that prayer has to be the foundation of what... um, any success that we experience in church life, any... Any grace of God that moves among us where we see lives changed, any people coming to know him, any genuine spiritual life in a church is because God does it and God always acts in response to prayer. But I think we're also agreed that while prayer is the most important thing in the Christian life and in church life, it's it's also the hardest. And um, I'd be the first to put my hands up as I am doing right now and uh, I, I find prayer difficult it's not the easiest part of the Christian life and I think that those two things are, cr- are connected I think that prayer is hard because of its importance I think that it's it, it's so vital that it's going to be the area which you have the most spiritual battle and it ought to be the, the testimony or the the kind of the story of every Christian that you are growing in your ability and your joy in prayer year on year in your walk with Jesus as you know him better. They ought to be progression. Now thankfully Christ didn't leave us without instruction and this prayer really gives us insight into how we can pray better and last week we stopped at that first word father because as soon as we understand the fatherhood of God it reframes everything about prayer. If we know God is as judge, see you later, Dan. <laughs> if we know God only as judge, he's, he can't be pleased. 
And thankfully, God, in his capacity as judge, has poured out his judgment and his anger against sin at Jesus on the cross. But the New Testament also portrays, in a a unique way, the fatherhood of God as one whom we can, in fact, please. There's nothing perfect or good about our lives that could please God as judge. But when we come to him as father, he's like a dad who's forgiving to his children. So it completely reframes the way that we pray. It, It means that when we bring our lives to him in prayer, with all the mixture that's true of you in the week and all the kind of um, conflicted desires and emotions and motives and the sin which so easily entangles, we know that his fatherly embrace is still there for us. And it's also just the weakness you feel in the act of prayer itself is covered by his grace as a father. No father looks to their child or ought not to look at their child and have a certain sort of um, uh, particular way in which they want to relate that has these formalities and these, these uh, particular sort of um, ingredients. It's, it's an, an informal thing, isn't it, to come to your, to your dad who loves you. And so there's nothing more important than that we first of all grasp the fatherhood of God before we move on. But having said that, We come now to this first of the petitions. So it lists all these sort of petitions that Jesus instructs us to pray. Hallowed be your name. And I want to begin just by explaining very quickly what that means. That obviously, particularly in Middle East and in ancient culture, somebody's name represents the person. And therefore, how God's name was treated, this is why it's one of the, the Ten Commandments. It's actually the third commandment, to hold God's name and not to uh, blaspheme God's name. Because it means that how you treat the name of God is how in your heart you treat God himself. And to, ha- to hallow something just means to, um, to count it as special and sacred and to glorify it with your entire being, really. So I think um, th- this is, you have to understand this, first of all, as a petition. The New Living Translation puts it, May your name be kept holy. May it be reverenced, may it be honoured, may it be loved. This is the the idea behind the petition. I want to break it down for you in three ways. Three ways that you need to understand what you're praying for when you pray these words. The first is that you need to understand this as as a request, as a petition that fulfills itself. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that you can't pray this with any degree of sincerity... You can't say to God, hallowed be your name, without in that moment worshipping God. If there's an insincerity there, it just becomes hypocritical. Like when, uh, whenever sports teams meet on the pitch and they shake hands and wish each other good luck, what they really mean is, I hope you lose. Or when athletes stand at the line together and they say, good luck, good luck. What they mean is, trip on the next hurdle, smash your teeth and never race against me again. Now, we don't, we don't want this kind of insincerity in prayer. So the first way in which you have to understand this is that when you come to God and say, hallowed be your name, you are in that moment seeking to come to him in worship. There's both um, a biblical precedent for this and plenty of good reasons why that ought to characterize your prayer. If you think about how the Bible teaches us to, to approach God, we could look at various places. You could flick over to Psalm 100, which depicts the worshippers coming to the sanctuary, coming to the temple to worship God. And it says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. It's an instruction for God's people that when they come to the temple, they ought to come 
with a desire to bless God and to worship him. He goes on, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And he says, enter his gates. These are the temple gates. Come into the temple gates. And how do you do it? With thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So the Old Testament believers knew that to approach God, to come to the holy place that was the temple, you needed to get your heart aligned correctly. I know that in all the experiences and the turbulence of life, this isn't something you always feel, but it's almost a discipline that you ought to walk in, that we come to God with thanksgiving. And this is not lessened for the New Testament believer who doesn't have a temple to approach. I would say that this is heightened because the New Testament teaches us that even if we don't have a temple to come to, we have something better. In Hebrews 12, we're told that when we come to God, he says, you've come to Mount Zion, which is where the temple was, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Now, he's putting this in the past tense. He's he's not saying, this is your destiny as Christians, that when you get to be with God, you're going to be in the heavenly Jerusalem with all these angels. He's saying, this has already happened to you when you become one who worships God in spirit and in truth. You have come into the very throne room of the living God. And he says, to the assembly of the firstborn and so on and so on, and to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So this idea isn't lessened with the New Testament. It's actually heightened and brought into deeper and more powerful focus. That when you come to God in prayer, you're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem, into God's courts. And so he says a little bit further on, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I know this might seem like a truth which in in some ways comes against what we've been saying about God as Father, but we have to hold these things together in tension. That there's something profoundly wonderful about knowing that God is both a consuming fire and the Father who beckons you to draw near. It's not a fire that will consume you or hurt you, but will purify you. But the principle's there that when you come to Him, when you come into His presence, we come with thanksgiving. Calvin said that prayer is basically just two things. It's petition, asking God for things, and it's thanksgiving, thanking him for what he's already done. And when you start looking through Paul's instructions about prayer, it it very quickly becomes evident that this is the way he understood prayer. Just these two basic ingredients. Let me show you in Philippians 4, these famous verses, Philippians uh, 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do you lack joy? Well, Paul says, we need to find a way of rejoicing in God. And he goes on and says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, there's your petition. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. It's very simple, isn't it? That God has asked you to come into his presence. And what it means to hallow his name is to find... Fresh ways each day of praising him, of loving him, of pouring out thanksgiving to him. We could go on and look at other letters of Paul in Colossians, which is the next letter. Chapter 4. 
He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Is your prayer characterized by this overflow of thanksgiving to the living God? In his next letter, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 16, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you see the simplicity of it and the clarity? I think this is what Jesus meant when he said to come to God and say, Hallowed be your name. He's saying you come to him first and foremost to honour him as your father and to give worship and praise and thanksgiving to him. There's some of the biblical instruction and precedent, but I also want to give you a few reasons why I think this just makes very good sense. One of those reasons is that when you come to God with worship, there's a realignment that takes place. This is why we've begun with worship here together. I think that you find that there's a weakness in your own prayer sometimes of worship and gathering together with others can almost stir up things that aren't there in your personal prayer time. But the reason we come is that there is this realignment. I find that in the week, or not just in the week, all the time, my mind is always thinking about myself. It's our default, isn't it, to come back and think about ourselves. But when we come to God and we begin to offer up a sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving, of love, of worship, there's a realignment that takes place. You're beginning to honour Him as God. And that has a profound effect on not only the way you pray, but also then the content of what you pray. You can't continue to pray in a a purely selfish way when you're giving honour to the God who made you and created you. So I say, first of all, there's a realignment that comes. Secondly, I say there's a faith that comes when you put worship first. I mean by that, that prayer that doesn't have faith is useless. Prayer that that doesn't believe that God can do the things that you're asking him to do is, is an ineffectual way of praying. Jesus doesn't say you have to have a lot of prayer, but you need to have faith, but you need to have faith. One of the greatest ways that the Bible instructs us to stir up the faith that we have is by recalling God's power, by remembering his deeds, by remembering what he's done in past days and remembering his character and the patterns by which he works. And the more you are able to come to God in worship and praise, the stronger and more powerful your prayers will be as you build up your own faith in God. And let me add another reason why I think this just makes good sense, and it's what we've been seeing in the verses we read from Paul's letters. That with praise and with thanksgiving comes joy. I don't think you can make this too formulaic, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of people who lack joy in day-to-day life have forgotten how to say thank you. And even the secular world has begun to recognize the power of gratitude. But the difference, of course, between Christian gratitude and Gratitude that is just saying thank you into the void is that we have someone to thank. We have a person who we approach. And if ever you're finding yourself, you know how it can be some days. You just find you're spiritually in the doldrums. You feel like there's no wind in your sail. And you know, you pick up your Bible, you know you need to read it. And you know you need to pray. But there's no oomph, there's nothing in you to get yourself out of the slump. I would say, listen... Perhaps the key, though, is you've got to begin 
of giving thanks to God. There's so much good he's done in your life. Your breath in that moment. Your friends, your fellowship, the word of God, your salvation. And often our joy problem is is a thanksgiving problem. That would be the first thing then. I would say that this prayer is a petition that has the power to fulfill itself. Hallowed be your name, you begin in worshipping God. I want to say secondly, that this is a prayer for yourself. And this is something slightly different. Let me try and explain what I mean here. I don't think you can pray, God let your name be hallowed. Without praying first and foremost that God does it in you. Not just in that moment, not just in your prayer, but in your, in your whole life. When Luther was commenting on, on the Lord's Prayer, he pointed out that as Christians we carry the name of God. The Bible tells us that we have his name written on us. That there's a sense in which he stamps you and says you're mine. But that also means that when you go into the world and you carry the name of Jesus and your friends and your colleagues know you are a Christian... You're representing Jesus to the world. And so your life and lifestyle, your attitudes, your emotions, your conduct, the way you treat other people, the way you work, the way you play, the way you enjoy yourself, all of these things are a reflection on the name of God. So to pray, hallowed be your name, is, a way, is, is in a way wanting God to change and transform your life so that more and more you bring glory to him in your day-to-day living. So I think that right at the start of this prayer, as Jesus says, Father, hallowed be your name. This is how you should pray. Hallowed be your name. What he's instructing us to do is to enter into fresh consecration to God. I don't think there's, you can't consecrate yourself to God too often or too intensely or too fervently or with enough meaning and and sincerity. There's always a need to keep coming back to God and consecrating yourself to him. This word, by the way, It just means to set yourself apart for God's use and to invite him to make you holy. Just before the Israelites were about to go into the promised land, you know, before they crossed the river Jordan, Joshua instructs them, he says, consecrate yourselves. I think there was the motivation there that as they begin to walk into the destiny that they had, as the people of God taking possession of the land, they didn't want to bring all the mess and the crap that was with them in the wilderness into their inheritance. Unfortunately, they did. But Joshua was, was, was hoping and pressing the people of Israel towards a greater purity and devotion to the living God. That's what consecration means. So when we're praying this prayer, hallowed be your name, we are inviting the Spirit of God to come and work in our hearts and do the things in us which will enable us to bring glory to Him in a more consistent way on a day-to-day basis. What does it look like then to do that in a practical sense? Well, let me begin by saying this, that The things you love are the things that you hallow or glorify. You don't have to be around a person very long before you begin to realize what they love because it's it's what their life is bringing glory to. It's, It's what they talk about. It's what spills out of them. It's what they spend their money on. It's what they fear losing. It's what they are giving their time and energies to. 
And very quickly, you know, I could spend a short amount of time with each of you and would begin to understand the things that your heart loves. So if that's the sequence, how it works, that what you hallow begins with what you love. Remember what Jesus said about our heart's love. He said that we should, the greatest command is that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And I think that is what this prayer is all about. It's an invitation that God would move on your life to reorientate every part of your being towards him. And so it's as simple as as thinking, firstly, how am I falling short of loving God and therefore glorifying him? And then asking, well, what scriptures apply to this part of my life? And then praying those scriptures every day until God begins to crack you and break you and change you and shape you and make you someone who brings him glory. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Perhaps in that command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. Maybe it's your mind that is the weak point here, that you find your mind is all over the place and that you haven't dedicated your mind to learning the things of God. You know how Paul said that he made it his aim to know Christ? Is that what your mind is consumed with? Well, maybe you'll take a prayer like Psalm 119.73, verse 73, where he says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Now, the way I read that is he's saying, God, you made my brain. Now make my brain capable of knowing and learning your word and your ways until I am so shaped in my mind by you that I become like Christ. Or maybe, to give you another example, it's more a heart thing. That when you think about your heart, you think, well, one of the ways in which I'm falling short of giving glory to God is that my heart is conflicted. I love all kinds of things. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not drawn towards God in a consistent way. I'm torn this way and that way, all over the place. Or maybe you take a prayer like Psalm 86 and uh, verse 11 where he says this, Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's more commonly, you probably have heard it as, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. There's an insight there about what the heart is like, how it can be pulled in different directions. And what he's saying is, I don't want to be pulled to the left or to the right anymore. I want to have a singleness of focus a dedication and a delight in the living God. And my advice to you is take that verse and pray it every day until it's true of you. That's how you hallow God's name. Maybe you're someone who struggles with humility, as in a lack of it. And uh, one of of the characteristics of people who lack humility is just a sense of self-sufficiency. You know, you, you, you start your day and you don't pray because you don't feel any need to pray. You walk it to work and you think, I can do this. Maybe you want to take a prayer like the words of Jesus in John 15 verse 5 where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Maybe you need to take that verse and pray it every day until your dependence on him is felt in the deepest part of your being. And prayer becomes the reflex action in every moment. Rather than planning, rather than scheming, rather than working, always you're running back to him and back to him. Why? Because you've prayed this idea into your heart by the power of the Spirit. That's what it means to hallow God's name. Maybe it's a lack of purity. Maybe you find that there is sins that just cling to you and which you find you can't escape from. You might take a psalm like Psalm 1. Probably the most famous of the psalms. Because maybe people don't get much further than it when they're reading the psalms. But Psalm 1, it's, it's just profound. The simplicity and yet the power in these promises that... On the one hand, he says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or seat in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And so he goes on. My advice is pray it every day until you can say with the psalmist, my delight is to do God's will. And then the promises are yours, that you'll be like a tree planted by streams of waters. Maybe it's that you are begrudging in servanthood. And you want to read Jesus' words in Matthew 25, where he says, that you're not, we're not going to be like the Gentiles who lord it over each other. We're going to be aiming to be the least and to serve one another. Or maybe your problem is just distraction. How you, you have good intentions in life to do the will of God, and you know what God's called you to do. But you find yourself always failing to carry through the things which you've committed to. And so you want to take a verse like Proverbs 4.25. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. And pray it until God has given you a singleness of focus to do the will of God in your life. We could go on all day. But let me just tell you, these verses which I've been just sharing are the ones that I pray for myself. I've found that it's such a helpful habit of this last year that this is how I begin. I want to work these scriptures into my life and, and be shaped by them. And you'll have your own list. And maybe they'll change daily or weekly or yearly. But you need to be aware, self-awareness before God. How is it that I'm not bringing glory to you, God? Now shape me. If you need help from others, talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Tell them, I'm not sure where I'm falling short. You tell me where I'm coming short. And then help me to find scriptures that will address this. Now you might think that this sounds all a little bit selfish to begin, hallowed be your name, and you're thinking, well, how do I need to change? I remember John Piper talking about this in prayer, talking about his pattern for prayer. And he said, he thinks in terms of concentric circles. He said, I begin by praying for myself, and then my, my wife, and my family, and then my extended family, and then my church, and then the world. And he said, that might sound selfish. Like, maybe you ought to be really selfless and start by praying for the world and then eventually, oh, woe is me, woe is me, you pray for yourself at the end. And he says, no, the, the thing is, unless God changes me, I'm of no use to anyone. I can't even pray unless God changes me. It's a humble thing, isn't it? And so this is what I'm trying to help you to see. When you're saying, Father, hallowed be your name. It's firstly worship on the spot. It's secondly praying that God changes you until you're a person who gives glory to God day in, day out. Don't we all want that? Finally then, this is a prayer for the world. And this is what I mean. But in Romans 1, 
what we discover is that the problem of humanity is a worship problem. The problem with the world, when we look around and see all the corruption and all the, 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 the ravages of sin, it always comes back to a worship problem. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 1 when he says this. The God, they knew God. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. He's making the case that in the world there's enough of God's glory on display for people to, to become worshippers. But he says, humans, by default, suppress it. He says, they, they try and ignore the glory of God. And he says, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking there about a principle which is just as valid today as it was in the first century when he wrote it in the centuries preceding that. That the human heart, as Calvin put it, is an idol factory. We are always finding things to worship other than God. Of course, when God brings somebody to life by his spirit and they come to know him, that changes. And it begins a lifetime of change. But this is the default, how we're brought into the world as little idolaters. And so all the problems of sin and the ravages of sin we see around us boil down to a worship problem. And here's the reason why. That the Bible teaches us that worship is transformational. That's something intensely wonderful and positive when you worship the right thing, when you worship the living God. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul puts it this way, that we all, with unveiled faces, so without anything to, to sort of cloud our vision, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. We can see who He is in the Scripture and by the power of His Spirit, and He says we're being transformed into His image. So He's saying, in effect, from one degree of glory to another, that, that as we become true worshippers of God, we become transformed by, by that worship. But the opposite is true also, that when we begin to worship idols, as Paul's described in Romans 1, we become like the idols we worship. In Exodus 32, when the Israelites had, had made their, their golden calf, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the hand of the living God, and he comes down and Aaron has got all the jewelry together, melted it, and made a golden cow. And the people are worshipping and he said, this is the living God. This is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they're bowing down to the cow. And God, he's ready to, to let them go. And the way he puts, he describes them to, to Moses, he says that they're a stiff-necked people. And that's a phrase which keeps coming up through the Old Testament. But the reason why he says they're stiff-necked is because they become like cows, basically. Cows are stiff-necked animals by nature. You try and move a cow around, they don't want to go where you want them to go. And he says, my people are like cows. They're stiff-necked. In other words, their life has become a mirror image of the God that they worship. And the same is true of all the gods that are worshipped in our culture. You don't have to look far to understand why we see so much rampant... <coughs> destruction at the hands of the God called sex. You want to understand why 
People live for the weekend and that one night stand. Why pornography is a daily battle for so many. Why there's so much news breaking of you know, corrupt old men who've been keeping it in secret for years. Why marriages break down with adultery and why teenagers are getting pregnant and getting diseased and all this stuff. It's because of worship. It's a worship problem. You don't have to look far to understand why there's so much battle surrounding money. And the capitalists on the one hand saying, I want to keep it all. And the socialists saying, I want all of yours. And, and all this kind of raging battle around money because of greed, because of the worship of money. This is the reason why there's exploitation. This is the reason why rich uh, countries want to pay minimum wage to kids and factories. This is why, because the bottom line is what people worship. We could go on and on. You worship power and you get tyranny. You worship the God of reason and the mind. Soon enough you have university professors, and this is what's happening, saying, uh, you can't touch that boy. Delicious, huh? <laughs> you worship reason and the mind, and soon enough you have guys who are supposedly e- experts in ethics saying that we should kill disabled children even after they've been born. This might sound a bit far-fetched to you, but you, this is happening. This is what happens. You say, logic is God. Well, where does logic take us? Well, we could maybe have a better society with less suffering if we just put them out of their misery. Your gods are your masters which then shape and form and transform your life. And so when we pray, God, hallowed be your name. This is a missional prayer. This is a prayer that God would extend his glory so visibly and powerfully into the world that more and more people will become worshippers of the living God. John Piper memorably expressed it this way that Missions exist because worship doesn't. The entire goal of the church is to entice more people to see God's glory and become worshippers of the living God. It's why the church is in the world. It's the destiny of the world. You remember that passage in Philippians 2 where... Paul describes Christ who didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. And how it ends, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, I don't know what you think when you read that, but I read that as a prediction and a promise, a prophetic promise of what God intends for his son Jesus. He wants all eyes to see Jesus and to bow in humble surrender to him. That's the destiny of the world. Not, I'm not for a minute suggesting that everyone's going to do it willingly or in a saving way, but even those rebels whom God is going to judge are going to get down on their knees one day if only in fear before the living God. If that's the direction the world is going, when we pray, hallowed be your name, 
We're praying it with two motivations in mind. We're praying it on the one hand with a zeal for, for God's glory and, and a zeal for his name. A jealous passion that, that no one should defame the living God. You remember when Jesus went into the temple and he began smashing the tables and the money changers um, where all these corrupt uh, dealers who were trying to sell animals at a profit so that people could come and make their sacrifices and he goes and he turns it all over he gets a whip out of all things and starts whipping these traders you imagine it, it was a, it was a complete raucous sight and his disciples I don't know how they felt but what jumps to mind is the scripture zeal for your house consumes me maybe they felt convicted that they lacked zeal for God's house because they say well if zeal for your house consumes a person that's what you get you get a mad Jesus stamping around smashing up all this corruption in the temple of God so on the one hand there's this zeal that drives the people of God God to pray this way may your name be glorified in the world but on the other hand it's a love for, for the world around us For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a story of God who who sees humanity rebelling against him, worshipping their idols, and yet he still continues to reach out. And he says, okay, you're not worshippers yet, what do you need? You need to see more of me. And therefore he sends his son to the world to display more of his character and his goodness. And Jesus in his life and lifestyle, in his perfection, displays God's glory, shows what God is like. He's the image and the representation of the living God. And then he does so most perfectly, most powerfully and most wonderfully when he goes to the cross in your place. And there you see the glory of God displayed for all the world that no one can look at God and say that you are a harsh judge. Because he says, I gave my son. No one can say you don't understand our suffering and pain when he says, look, my son experienced it to the full on the cross. No one can say to God, you're not good, you're withholding. When he says, I didn't withhold my own son. And so the more that the gospel is preached in the world, the more people see this and they begin to hallow God's name.